Our family dog's name's Bailey, and she's a, she's a rescue. And how do I put it? She's a little unpredictable, Bailey, a little unpredictable. She's sometimes unpredictable with children, which is an issue. She's almost always unpredictable with dogs. And so on the front of our house, we have uh, a little sign that says, beware of the dog, because nothing says Christian hospitality like <laughs> watch yourself. And kind of the funny thing about that sign is you actually have to enter the gate before you can even read what it says. So you're already just... But that's exactly how our text this morning starts out. Literally, the Apostle Paul picks up where he left off in Philippians. It's the start of... We're getting into Philippians chapter 3 now, this little letter to a church in Philippi that the Apostle Paul is writing to. Here's my Bible. uh, No, it's not open to Philippians. It's open to the Gospel of Matthew. There we go. There's Philippians. So most of the way into the Bible, this little letter, working our way through it this summer. And as uh, Paul arrives in chapter 3, he says, look out for the dogs. Now, people should look out for Bailey, our dog. But in general, you know, puppies are cute. Dog is, you know, a man's best friend. They're friendly. We love them. They're, they're even therapy to us, right? That's the way we kind of view dogs, but not in the ancient Greco-Roman world. No, dogs usually traveled in packs and they were nasty and they were dangerous. And so Paul is, is kicking off this passage by saying, um, there are those who enter the church and seek to damage it. They're, they're like a ravenous pack of dogs, and they're dangerous. He goes on to say, look out for the, not only the dogs, but the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is talking about a group, a group of people referred to as the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were those who, who, yes, were willing to accept Jesus as the Messiah, but who wanted to hold on to forms of Judaism and hold others to those forms of Judaism. Meaning that, yes, they were willing to accept Jesus, but they also required that, that these Greek individuals must become circumcised, these males, or that they must adhere to the entire Mosaic law as they did. And so this was actually problematic because essentially what these Judaizers infesting the church were doing was saying, yes, Jesus, but plus this, that, and the other thing. And that's, that was the danger. Jesus plus fill in the blank. And so Paul has some pretty harsh words for them. Now, Jewish individuals often used kind of slang words for non-Jewish people and called them dogs. And so Paul's actually flipping the script here and calling these Judaizers dogs. It's meant to be somewhat ironic. But let's look at the first six verses together and unpack them as we go. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Every few verses, Paul is calling the Philippians to rejoice because they've heard about Jesus, they're living for Jesus, they're a church that's fixated on Jesus, and they should rejoice about that no matter what's going on. So he's reminding them of that. He's like a preacher. He says, finally, and he's still got like two chapters to go. It's kind of like the preacher who's like 40 minutes in, and he's like, in conclusion, he's got like 20 minutes left. So he's kind of doing that here. He's like, finally, my brothers, but he's actually just trying to tie one thought to the next. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Here's the the verse I just uh, told you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul is actually saying, look, there are these Judaizers coming into the church and they're trying to say, yeah, Jesus plus circumcision. And Paul's like, they're mutilators of the flesh. We are the circumcision. He said in Colossians 2, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. He's telling this church, you already know Jesus. Therefore, you already have the circumcision that matters. Your heart, the sinful nature in you has been cut away and replaced with the nature of Christ. Jesus himself in John 4 said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So Paul's like, for we are the circumcision who worship God by the spirit and who glory in Christ. And then he summarizes his point this way, put no confidence in the flesh. He's using this word confidence to mean trust. Don't trust in the flesh. Don't rely on the flesh. So what we want to do here is, is look firstly at our temptation to put confidence in the flesh. But let's put it this way, putting confidence in personal credentials. This is dangerous of us. And this is very Judaizer of us to, to, to say, yeah, Jesus, but also this thing I do and that thing I do. That's the danger that Paul is confronting in this text. D.L. Moody said the same thing. Great 20th century theologian and evangelist said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. That's exactly the danger that Paul is trying to flag for this church in Philippi. Uh, my friend uh, was on his front porch the other day and uh, a little seven-year-old boy was coming to his house to, to play with his kids. And, but he, he came up on the front porch and started talking to my friend, this little seven-year-old neighbor boy. And they were talking for a little while. And eventually the boy looked up at him and said, are you a Christian? And my friend said, yes. And they talked a little bit. And then my friend posed the question back, are, are, are you, are your family Christian or, or what? And, and the boy said, well, my mom believes in God. She doesn't go to church, but she's a good person. And, and he found that fascinating because here's a seven-year-old who asked if my friend is a Christian. And when it's asked back, he's kind of on this defensive, a seven-year-old saying, yeah, my mom believes in God. She doesn't go to church but she's a good person. It's fascinatingly ingrained in us, isn't it? This kind of defensive, I'm good because I do good stuff. I'm a person who does enough good that I'm okay. If we're talking about being okay with God or being meriting heaven, like it's this concept and it's fascinating. It's in children, like this, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm good, so all will be good. This is a, he's actually speaking into something that's a very popular notion. The, the majority of North Americans believe there's a God and the majority of North Americans believe there's a heaven and that they're going there. Um, so I wanna show you a diagram on the screen. We'll call it belief number one. We'll look at three beliefs this morning. Belief number one, let's call it confidence in being a good person. Um, Maybe you've heard this before where someone will say, well, I'm not Hitler. 
I mean, I'm, I'm no saint. I'm not Hudson Taylor, the great missionary. I'm not Mother Teresa, the great philanthropist. I'm not Billy Graham, the great evangelist. But I'm a good person. I mean, I'm not a serial killer. And so the, the mindset of, of, of a confidence in being a good person, we could also call that the belief that God grades on a scale. But, but using the ladder imagery, it's this concept that down at the bottom rungs of the ladder are the evilest person that we all agree on in the world. But, but if you work a ways up, most of us are a ways up the ladder. We're not down there. And th- th- there is this, whatever we deem it might be, this arbitrary line that's like, this is the good enough line. And at the good enough line, everything above this rung is, is merit of heaven. I've been way up there, it's like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm, I've, I've surpassed the good enough line. I mean, it almost looks silly when we view it that way, but I, I just need to, I need to show it to you for this reason. This is a belief, right? Everybody believes something, and if the majority of people believe there's a God, a good portion of those people will, will, will also have the belief that God grades on a scale and that I am good enough by the credentials that I myself have. And I just want to tell you this morning, that's a poor substitute for the gospel to stake your life on. There's not a lot of evidence that would point to the fact that this is defense of defensible belief. And it is a widely held belief. Now, I recognize um, three, th- uh, a couple things this morning. One, I'm, 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 I'm white. And two, I I live in at least the suburbs and maybe even beyond the suburbs. So most of you would think I don't have the credentials to talk about hip hop culture and you would be right, but I'm going to anyways. (laughs) Now there's this term when, when rapping MCs will use something called bregadachio. Now I'm sure none of them use it. This is a white suburban man's use of a term for hip hop where bregadachio is the verses in a hip hop song where they're talking about how much money they have, how many cars they have, how much bling they have, how, you know, many diamonds are on their necklaces, how many women they have, uh, the beach house they have, the condo they have, the mansion they have. This is referred to as bregadachio. What's fascinating to me is that we see in this text that Paul is actually the OG. All right. Do you know what OG means? He's the original gangster. Okay. Paul, Paul is the OG. Half of you think this is good stuff. Um, He's, he, he's, he's old school. Like, like, so, so all of these rappers have their bregadachio verses and the apostle Paul steps to the mic. He asks for the beat and he's like, you want to play? You think you have reason to boast? I've got more, right? He's like, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. I'd like to hear you rap about that. Of the people of Israel, yo, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to turn that off. I'm going to turn that off. (laughs) Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You think you know the streets, man? Persecuted Christians, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
There's all these Judaizers who are infesting the church in Philippi and are like, yeah, you can have Jesus, but you also need this, this, and this. And Paul's like, the Judaizers are coming at you like that? Listen, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's, he, he's showing them, he ha, if you wanna play the merits game, if you wanna play the confidence in your personal resume, Paul's got a better one. So listen to me, he's saying. So let's look at belief number two. It's a little just more detailed than the first one. It's confidence in personal credentials, or in other words, look at my impressive resume. So I want us to look at what Paul counted on in his life up until the point he was converted. He starts with his impressive beginning. Yes, he says, circumcised on the eighth day. No proselyte, no person who came to faith later. Like they'd get, they'd get circumcised at whatever age that is. No, he was circumcised when you were supposed to be. He was a purist. He was uh, like the Mosaic law required that on the eighth day, a baby boy be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And Paul had been, but you know what? We do this too. Oh, I, I was sprinkled as an infant. I'm good. I was baptized as an infant. I'm good. We had this special dedication service and and supposedly the pastor prayed over me. So I think I'm good. I was brought to church as a very young child. But here's the thing. Salvation is about becoming a new creation, not about going through a particular ritual. Secondly, Paul talks about nationality. He says, I was of the people, I'm of the people of Israel. In other words, Paul had the right nationality. He was born of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. God gave his law, sent his prophets, gave his commandments, and made his covenant all to the nation of Israel. Paul was a physical descendant of Abraham. Those who trust in being a citizen of a nation with Christian heritage sometimes fall for this themselves. Where a majority population identify as Christian, there's this sense of, oh, of course I'm a Christian. I'm Canadian. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm American. Of course I'm Catholic. I'm from Quebec. And on and on it goes. This sense that like, look, I'm German. Luther's from Germany. I'm obviously good. Right? That idea. Yet this special privilege doesn't give anyone reason for assurance of salvation. But he goes on, he talks about his lineage. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin was one of two elite tribes. Jerusalem was in the land assigned to Benjamin. So it was in the land of Benjamin that the temple was built, that everyone would flock to for feasts, that sacrifices were made at the temple in the land of the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin was one of two tribes that remained loyal to King David's descendants when the kingdom divided. They remained in Judah. And yet we can do this too. Well, Christianity is everywhere in my family tree. I'm obviously a believer. Or I have a Mennonite last name, or I have a Dutch last name. I'm an Esau for crying out loud. Of course I'm saved. I'm a Van Hofenhafer, you know, so I'm fine. Like, I'm all good there on that front. I come from Christian lineage, so it just trickles down to me, and I am by default that. I'm fine. But salvation doesn't come to you by trusting in your name. It comes through trusting in another name, and that's Jesus. 
But he goes on, he says, talks about his upbringing, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was fluent in Greek. He wrote this letter to the church in Philippi in Greek to Greek speakers. And, and there were in that city Hellenistic Jews, which is to say Greek-speaking Jews. So Paul is, is one-upping them here and saying, yeah, 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 I can speak fluent Greek, but Hebrew is my native tongue. He was born of Hebrew parents, raised in a Hebrew home, and with the Hebrew language, he was as Hebrew as Hebrew as you could get. We sometimes do this too. I, I grew up in a Christian home. I, I went to a Christian school. I think I'm fine. I went to catechism. I learned the catechism. I Memorize John 3.16 and many other passages. I think I know. And look, those are good things, but by themselves, they can't save you. Then he goes on to rule keeping as to the law of Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were those men committed, most committed to the Old Testament scriptures. They even added to the commands of the Old Testament so much that it was hard to tell which were commands of scripture and which were their own additional rules for themselves. And they would strive to keep all of it, right? These individuals would take the Bible's commands seriously. And there, there are... Listen, the temptation is for us to simply do the same, to take the commands of the Bible seriously and even tell other people to take the commands of the Bible seriously. Do the right do's and don't the right don'ts. Listen, this is the default mode of the human heart is that rule keepers go to heaven, right? Right? But listen, rule keeping this text wants to show us this morning won't earn you salvation, won't make you right before a holy God. And then finally, well, two more actually, sincerity as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul wasn't apathetic about his beliefs. He was zealous. He was passionate. He was driven. He was sincere. Paul was zealous for what he perceived to be the things of God. He was so sincere about them that he went about persecuting and hating those who had a differing faith view. Listen, today, people are passionate and sincere about a lot of things. And so can I, can I say something a little bit provocative in our time? You can be sincere as you want about something, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. But we, we don't really believe that anymore. Like truth has become sort of a nebulous, man, I love that you found your truth, and I have my truth. And what really matters is that you're sincere about your truth while I'm being sincere about mine, and that is what really matters. But what Paul is showing us in his own life is that you can be sincerely wrong, as sincere as you are. Paul was wrong to persecute these Christians. He was zealous. He was passionate. But passionate, passion alone does not save us. And finally, he talks about morality as to 
righteousness under the law, blameless. When he says blameless, he never intended it to mean sinless perfection. He was speaking of exemplary behavior when it came to obeying the Old Testament law. You would look at Paul and you would see uh, an outwardly moral person, an extremely upright individual. He was a self-righteous person who boasted in his own moral superiority. Sometimes you might feel that in your own life. You're like, I know that I'm known around town as a really good person. I make a habit of staying clear of the big sins, the cardinal sins. No one could ever accuse me of those. I'm good. I guard what I watch on TV, right? The only R-rated movie I've ever seen is the one where they crucified Jesus, okay? I, like, I'm as clean as they come in terms of content and all of that stuff, But listen, salvation does not come through our morality. It comes through the spotless perfection of Jesus. Now, I want to make an important distinction as I go through this list because the temptation is to hear in our minds, oh, yeah, see, church doesn't matter. Reading the scriptures doesn't matter. All these things, they don't matter. You know what matters? But listen, I want to make an important distinction. Real good true good can come, yes, from church attendance and Bible reading and guarding what you watch. But here's the, here's the thing. As a means of salvation, they will fall short always. If you clean up your life and tick some of or even all of the boxes like Paul, but you never come to know Jesus, you're still totally lost, this text is telling us. Stephen Lawson put it this way of Paul's life before Jesus. Paul had everything except for one thing. He had everything except Jesus Christ. And if a person does not have Christ, they have nothing. He had everything except everything that he needed. Let me try and illustrate it to you this way. Pretend with me that there's a boat up river from a waterfall and you've got a chain that you're gonna attach the boat to the dock with, and there's 10 links in the chain. Now, if, if you were to glance at that and like eight, nine of the links of the chain are broken, you just glance and you're like, oh, that boat is toast. That boat is going, right? It's gone. But what if only one chain in the link, one link in the chain is broken? What then? Well, the same fate, no? It only takes one broken link in the chain for that boat to be going down the waterfall. See, we're tempted to go, man, I don't have eight broken links. I've only got one. I'm fine. It it, it doesn't work that way. See, there are two main problems with putting your confidence in your own righteousness. First, no matter how high your standards are, even if you think you lead an ethically superior life, your high standards still fall short of God's standard. Paul put it most clearly in Romans 3 when he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. And the second problem with putting your confidence in your own righteousness is you fall short of your own standards no matter how high or low they are. I just want to show you that for a couple minutes. What's the standard for your confidence in your own righteousness? Like, what are the things that would lead you high enough up the ladder, concrete things that would lead you high enough up the ladder to merit for yourself salvation? The Sermon on the Mount, perhaps? It's recorded in Matthew and Luke. Greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus preaching about the kingdom, 
It says in one part of the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Do you meet that? So if the Sermon on the Mount is your standard, you fail at it. And so you're unrighteous. Our conscience reminds us every day we're not perfect. What if the Ten Commandments then is our standard? The Ten Commandments, we studied this last summer, one at a time, and every single commandment, we were like, oh, we fall short of that. We fail at keeping that. Like, let's just take do not covet as one example. Man, all of us covet most days of our lives. We don't keep that. What about the golden rule? Matthew, Jesus says it in Matthew 7, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You and I don't meet that standard because none of us always do for others what we'd like to have done for ourselves. So we don't meet that standard. Listen, even if the standard we're trying to uphold is lowest common denominator, fair play. Just play fair in life. Okay, Let, let's, let's pretend for a minute that uh, Suri or Alexa records a week of your conversations in your house, which it does. And you just were to play back those conversations during the week. Alexa, play back the secrets that you're selling to somebody, right? And, and they say all of the things. You just hear back your own conversations, your own talk. You wouldn't even meet the most basic standard of fair play in life just by hearing back a week of your conversations in your home. Because none of us play fairly all the time. We cut corners and give ourselves the benefit of the doubt while holding others to the standards we ourselves don't meet. That's what we do by default. Like all I would need to do is take one disagreement with my wife and hear that played back, right? Most of us couples, married couples in the room, just hear one disagreement played back and what'll happen? We realize, man, I don't even play by fair rules. I don't even hold the basic standards up. Most of the husbands are like, yeah, that's totally true. Most of the wives are like, oh, I've got them there. I, won, I, I was right, actually. I'm still fine. <laughs> and you probably were. <clears throat> Here's the profound reality I'm, just, I'm trying to get at here. Even if righteousness before God depended on the standards we hold ourselves to, we would all be condemned by that standard. Do you hear that? So if we were to take the standards of God and lower them to a standard we create, we wouldn't meet that one. We'd be condemned by our own standards that we've created. We wouldn't reach those. That's a big problem, no? How do we ever get good enough on the ladder to merit heaven then? It's like I'm preaching or something. See, we should have no confidence at all in anything that we can do. And if we shouldn't place our confidence in them and ourselves, what's left to be done? Thank you, Jesus. There's a few more verses this morning. Let's pick it up in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, all of these attributes about Paul and inheritances of Paul that he looked to his whole life before he was saved is like, man, this is why I'm righteous. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss upon conversion for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Listen, we spent a few minutes this morning talking about putting our confidence in personal credentials. Here's the alternative that Paul wants us to see. Put your confidence in Christ. Paul is using accounting terminology here where you have your, your, your asset column, your profit column, and your loss column, liabilities column, column and he's, he's made a massive shift in his life. And all the things he considered gain, he's now put in the loss column. Impressive beginning, nationality, lineage, upbringing, rule-keeping, sincerity, morality. He thought those would give him righteousness before God, but he's come to realize those actually belong in the liability abilities column. And there's only one thing that should exist in the prophet column, Jesus alone, only Jesus. Paul uses the word counted three times in two verses. He's added up all the numbers and come up with a bottom line calculation. Everything he once counted as gain, he now counts as loss. Everything in his life he once trusted him in to give him acceptance with God, he's placed on the liabilities column. When Paul came to Christ, he rendered everything else as loss. All the things he thought profited him before, before God, suddenly became deficits. This is a critical statement here. I need you to hear. Paul came to see those things as things that would actually condemn him. Not because they were bad things in and of themselves, but because they were bad debt when he trusted in them to secure him heaven. Hear the distinction? These aren't terrible things. These are fine. And they're often attributes of a faithful Christian life. The problem is they themselves, those attributes of the Christian life and the ways in which we strive to live for Christ aren't the merits by which we are saved, aren't the merits by which we are made right with God. There's only one merit. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. All his privileges and accomplishments he thought were in the credit column, he's transferred to the debit column. He's taken all of those things and he's using really strong language. I'm gonna get provocative here this morning. He uses such strong language that he uses a vulgar word. You wanna hear it? Rubbish. I'm going to take out the rubbish now. What? That's, this is my least favorite ESV, English Standard Version, Bible translation of any word in all of the scriptures. It's rubbish right here. That's such a kind word for trash. Um, this word, when Paul wrote it, was a vulgar word. He wrote a vulgar word here with two meanings. It either means garbage or it means excrement, typically the excrement of animals. So can, can, I, can I paint the picture for you here? Paul is saying, I lived most of my life believing that because I did this and I didn't do this, because I was like this and I wasn't like that, 
that I was righteous before God, but you know what I've come to see in encountering Jesus? All of that stuff is dog shit. Thank you, Isaac. (laughs) Your dad's gonna have to talk you through that one later. Like, I, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to be provocative to be the swearing pastor. I just, I, I want you to remember this word right here. Anything at all in your life that you count on to save you, to merit you eternity with God, if it's anything other than Jesus, it's horseshit. Like, it, that's exactly what it is. It, the language is strong. The language is vulgar because Paul is trying to make the most important point in the world. The natural disposition of the human heart is this. I'm good enough. I do this, this, and this. And Paul's saying, we're not good enough. It's a pile of, I won't keep using the word. It's, it's dung. It's trash. Our best efforts are trash. Can we just be clear? That's what he wants us to know. That's what he wants us to see. It's a repudiation of all of it so that Christ alone can be what he puts it in. So look, count them as rubbish in order, the text says, that I may gain Christ. Meaning what? If we're still holding on to all of our own merits and righteousness, we don't gain Christ. We're self-saviors. We have to treat it like refuse, see it that way, so that Jesus alone can invade our lives for our salvation. It's a repudiation of the lists we make of our goodness so that Christ alone can be what he puts his confidence in. This won't be on the screen, but Greg Morris wrote, Lord, spare me from the success that would threaten to undo me. Not all victories are good victories. Not all triumphs will lead me home. Keep me from those achievements that would puff me up, those accomplishments that would tempt me to forget you. Something I really love about the Apostle Paul here is Paul is 30 years into faith in Jesus at this point. 30 years. And two times in this text, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He says later, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. He's 30 years into faith and he's not just resting on his laurels. Like, I remember when I came to faith, I got my ticket to heaven card. And then I kind of just turned and went on to pursue all the pleasures and successes by worldly standards. Because I really find my enjoyment and treasure there. But I got, I remember when I came. No, 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 no. Paul's 30 years into faith. I just want to know God, he says. I just want to walk with Jesus today and tomorrow and the next day. He's he's enamored by Christ. He's fixated on Jesus. He sees those things as they are. They're trash, they're rubbish, they're liabilities. They can actually be the things that condemn him if he fixates his life on them. No, instead he believes in Jesus and in faith, trusts that Christ's righteousness will be imputed to him. So if you're wondering, man, I, I, I've, I've relied on all sorts of things other than Jesus. What do I do with this? Well, you place your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. We do this all the time. Faith is it's just a basic thing. Faith. We put our faith in things all the time. Every time I drive over a bridge, I'm putting my faith in the engineers who designed that bridge, that they did it right. And I put my faith in the builders, uh, the workers who built the bridge, that they did it well. Every time I drive over a bridge, I put my faith in the fact that they did that. 
Every time I go to the grocery store and buy food, I'm putting my faith in the farmers, bakers, butchers, and manufacturers that when I eat this food, it's safe for me. Every time I get on a plane, I just, by faith, trust that the two individuals in the cockpit have their pilot's licenses. And, and that when I sit down in my seat and have the flight, that when we land, we're going to be in the, the destination that's on my ticket. Like I just sit on the plane expecting all of those things because I believe them that they will happen. See, see, here's the thing. God tells us that we can have confidence that our sins are forgiven, that his spirit dwells within us, that we will have entrance into the kingdom of God for all eternity, and that our security is in him if we put our faith in Jesus alone. That's where our faith is meant to lie when it comes to eternity. There's a, a H.A. Ironside put it this way about Paul upon conversion. He was not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system or one set of doctrines, rules, and regulations making way for a better one. He had come in contact with a divine person the once crucified, but now glorified Christ of God. He had been won by that person forever. And for his sake, he counted all else but loss. Christ and Christ alone meets every need of the soul. His work has satisfied God and it satisfies the one who trusts in him. This guy in our church, let's call him Tyler. Uh, Tyler was a successful accountant at a really young age, partner in an accounting firm. And um, he uh, had uh, just a lot of success. I had, I I happened to notice really nice truck, really, really nice motorcycle and a few other things. But if you were to talk to Tyler, he, he would tell you that the majority of his life, his life to a certain point a few years ago was actually fixated on the successes by the world's standards. Came to church here almost every week. But, but, but his fixation was on the successes by the world standards. That, that, that's where his passion lay. That's where his striving lay. And um, his wife, let's call her Cheryl, um, she just had this inclination in her heart. Like, I feel like God's calling us to foreign missions. But in her mind, she's like, but Tyler would never do it. Tyler would never go for it. His heart's not there. He's not going to do that. He's not going to sacrifice like that. And one Sunday morning in this room, the preaching convicted Tyler. It wasn't me preaching. Uh, And the the preaching convicted his heart. And he left there and he said to, let's call her Cheryl, um, said, I think we need to go. Like, I think we need to go overseas and serve. And, and, and they did that. They, 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 they sold the truck. They sold the motorcycle. He left his accounting firm and he, they, they, they went to actually like what's considered the poorest country in the world. Let's call it Burundi. Anyway, anyways, the missionary couple in our church, Tyler and Cheryl, they, they're recently back. Um, but they went to this, the poorest place from the greatest wealth to the poorest place to serve. But I, I'm not saying that you have to become a foreign missionary if you're an accountant. I'm simply saying that there's a certain kind of accounting that that Tyler actually experienced in his life that was precisely like what the Apostle Paul had experienced. He got a taste of Jesus that was so real. 
He came to love knowing Jesus more than loving anything else he had. And as a good accountant, he was able to take all the things that previously he thought were gains and successes and put them in the losses and liabilities column so that he could have Jesus, that he could know Jesus, that his joy could be rooted in Jesus, that his hope could be in Jesus, that his comfort and peace would rest in Jesus, that that would be the source of it all and that absolutely transformed his life. So I wanna, I wanna conclude with a question to us this morning. When God looks at your heart, when God looks at mine, what does he see? Does he see a confidence in your own crooked self-effort? I'm sorry, that's what it is. Does he see a confidence in your own crooked self-effort? Or when he looks into your heart, does he see his own righteousness granted to you as a free gift of grace through faith in his son, Jesus? That's my question this morning. I even had to swear to get it across. And the reason is this, we live in a religious town. You know how to play the game if you've been around the church long enough. You know how to play the game. You know what to do. You know what not to do. You know how to appear. You know that preachers aren't supposed to swear, so this is getting weird. You know the rights. You know the wrongs. You know the do's. You know the don'ts. You show them. The question is, what's in your heart? Whose righteousness are you trusting in? That you're nailing the Christianity game in town? or that your trust is in Jesus and Jesus alone? That's, that's, that's probably my big question for us always. Which is it, church folk? Like, which is it? Man, it's tempting to just, I'm doing really good right now. Oh man, I feel great about myself. Man, God must appreciate the efforts I make. I was willing to swear in my sermon just to get the point across, I'm nailing it, God. Like it's so crazy what we do. When God looks at your heart and mind, what does he see? What does he see? May it be that he sees his own righteousness granted to you as a free gift of grace through his son, Jesus. God alone is responsible for our salvation and his righteousness becomes ours personally through faith. We're gonna respond with communion. What a great way for us to respond. And I just wanna read the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 26, where it says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. I was at a little uh, pastor's seminar earlier in the week and the, the speaker there, N.T. Wright, this really noted theologian, he was talking about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. And he said, you know what it means? It means thank you. I love that he's, he's considered probably the preeminent New Testament theologian in the world. And he just talks so simply. He's like, you know what this meal is? This meal is thank you. Like when you, if you want to come and receive in a few minutes, you know what the posture is? Thank you, Jesus. Your body broken, your blood shed. So my sins could be forgiven. I could be made right with you. 
your righteousness could become my righteousness so I can have peace and hope and trust that you've dealt with it all. What a beautiful offering. What amazing grace. You do not need to leave here feeling terrible. You get to leave here with your trust in Jesus feeling thankful. So um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna have uh, communion servers come up, the band will come up, we'll have a couple of songs of response and over the course of that time, here's what I'd like to invite you to do. Take as long as you need to have that posture of gratitude and then come forward. One more emphasis this morning, if your confidence for salvation rests on Jesus alone, then I invite you to come forward even if it's for the very first time. If you wanna say, man, my confidence is in Jesus alone. He, he is my hope, not my own merits. If you have that posture and that kind of gratitude, when your heart is ready, come and receive with thankfulness. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Uh, we thank you that uh, you lived the life we could not live and you died the death that we deserved, but then you held out your hand and offered us uh, new life, life everlasting, life in your kingdom, life where everything will be made new, made right. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We want to be a church um, built on people who stake our hope, our confidence in Jesus alone. So we respond with great gratitude and thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.